Good morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. I can't help but think that's a great song. There's some people in our life, we'd like them to leave us alone. <laughs> but there's one that we don't want us to leave us alone, and fortunately that's exactly the way he would have it too. And if you don't know him this morning, I can tell you that it, if you knew anything about him at all, you wouldn't want him to leave you alone. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at the first six verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Looking at verse 1, Paul tells us to walk worthy. And the first thing I think of is, is uh, great names in history. What do these names bring to your mind? Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson, Lee, Einstein, and for you, Howard, Rockefeller. You missed that this morning in the breaking of bread. Edison, Franklin, <clears throat> all great names in history. And I've, I've become a, a real uh, fanatic of history. I love to, to see what has happened more so than I did when I was in high school. And one of the things that I like to do when I read about people is I think, hey, I wonder if they have any descendants. Who are their descendants? Are there any alive today? And if, if there are, and you can read about them or possibly even meet them, you have something you expect from them when you encounter them, don't you? You expect them to be something like their ancestor, their famous ancestor. Now, they're not always like that, and maybe that's a burden, hard burden to put on anybody, but nevertheless, we, we have that expectation, don't we? You might expect the uh, descendants of Washington Lincoln to, to be honest, huh? Maybe, maybe to be uh, good leaders. <clears throat> Descendants of Jefferson to be of great intelligence and understanding. Descendant of Einstein to be really good at math, right? <laughs> and we expect a descendant of Rockefeller to be able to make a lot of money. And if we learn the descendant is nothing like their ancestor, we're a little disappointed. We'd like to see some of that in them, wouldn't we? We'd like to see some, especially if it was a great person. It's the same for other things in life, too. Think of these names, Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, top schools. Oh, you went to Harvard? I automatically think, you're pretty smart. I, I, I think I'll hire you instead of this guy over here who went to some no-name school, right? Expect a higher level of ability and intelligence. BMW, Mercedes, Rolls-Royce. What do you expect? I have to tell the Rolls-Royce Axle story. I don't know if you ever heard it. 
But I love this story because it's awesome. <clears throat> so a man had a Rolls Royce, and he was driving down on some lonely road, and the car broke down. And it appeared to be that the axle was broken. And so he was able to get a hold of Rolls Royce, said, hey, here I am, you know, I think my axle's broken. And it wasn't too long, two guys showed up in a truck with an axle, fixed it, sent him on his merry way. So he goes back home and he, you know, he expects to get an invoice from Rolls-Royce, you know, to repair the axle. It's no little job and they're, they're expensive. And he never gets one. So he calls Rolls-Royce and he says, hey, you know, on such and such a date, I, my car broke down and you guys, you guys sent two guys out in a truck and an axle that fixed it right there on the spot. You know, got to cost a lot of money, right? And they said, well, hold on, Mr. So-and-so, we'll, we'll check into that. And, and they look, and they, and they get back on the line, and they say to him, <clears throat> let's say his name's Smith, Mr. Smith, we have searched our records high and low, and we can find no record of a Rolls-Royce ever having a broken axle. So in verse 1, Paul is calling us to walk worthy of our calling. What are we called? We're called Christians. And our calling is far higher than any family name on earth, isn't it? Far higher than any school and definitely better than any car that was ever made. We're going to talk about the church today, unity in the church. And the church is an organization on the earth like no other. Now, there are a lot of false churches out there, I'm sorry to say, and um, who, who don't have necessarily have good names, but the true church of Jesus Christ is very special. <clears throat> the church is greater than any other organization, any company you can think of, any country you can think of. The church is the most powerful, most important, and most well-equipped organization on this planet. And Paul doesn't just ask us to, to walk worthy. He, he uses the word beseech. There's this urgent push. I beseech you. Walk worthy of your calling. On top of that, he's, it says that in the verse here, it says, I, the prisoner of the Lord. This adds a little emphasis, a little weight to his words, you see, because Paul is committed to Jesus Christ. And he has served him to the extent that he's been thrown in jail. He's a veteran. And we do well to listen to his words, wouldn't we? So as we're going through the book of Ephesians, if you don't know it, from beginning to end, verse by verse, why is Paul talking about this at this point? Why is he saying, walk worthy of your calling? And we have to say, well, what, was he, what, what has he been talking about? You see the, uh, the little word here, the second word in the verse here is therefore. And when you're studying the Bible, you always want to know what the therefore is there for. And the therefore is therefore helping you understand that something was said before, therefore there is a logical conclusion. If I told you I stayed up late last night, it's logical that I am tired. Right? Okay. So, Paul is, um, he is saying, because of all these things I've been talking about in chapters 1 through 3, this is what you ought to do. 
It also is a turning point in the whole book itself. As you might know, in the New Testament letters, there's often the first part of the letter is a lot about doctrine, and then the last half of the book or so is about application. And chapter 4 begins the application. Okay, so you probably don't remember everything we've been studying the last few weeks, do you? And there are some of you here that didn't get to hear it. And there's no way that I can sit here this morning and do justice to what was said in the first three chapters. So uh, I would like to do something to help set the stage, so to speak, set the context for what Paul is saying. And I would like to look at the first three chapters. We're not going to read them. But I would like to think and look at the first three chapters and some of the things that are said there, plus some more, through the eyes of somebody who just came to know the Lord. I'm going to name this person Joe, and uh, let's just say that I've been sitting down with him for some time, going through the scriptures with him, and he's come to understand that, that he's in big trouble with God, that because of his sin, uh, he stands uh, to be judged for his sins, for which the punishment is indescribable. So we're at the point in sharing the gospel where I say to Joe, I say, Joe, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? If you were to die today, and God said, why should I let you in my heaven? What would you say? And Joe is downcast and distraught. The Holy Spirit has really opened up his heart. He really sees and he understands. And he says, there isn't anything I couldn't say. There's, there's nothing I can do. I've, I'm in a hopeless situation, and, and I can't see any way out of it. God is right. We're all living in this world doing our own things, sinning left and right, breaking his laws, living for self and not caring a thing about him. And we think everything's going to be okay, and that's absolutely not the case. And especially for me. I'm in trouble. Well, I tell Joe, 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 God does love you. And he doesn't want you to face the penalty for your sins. He is a God of love. But Joe says, but he's a just God too. He can't just forget about him or sweep him under the rug. I say, you're right. You can't do that. But Joe, what if, what if somehow, some way, he could find somebody who would take your place and suffer the penalty that you should and the justice would be satisfied and you could go free? And Joe just kind of sits back in his chair and says, oh yeah, that would be great. But who in the world would do that? I certainly wouldn't suffer for somebody's sins. So he's full of unbelief at this point because he can't think of anybody that would do that for him. But I tell him, well, Joe, that's why we're looking at this book today because this book does talk about somebody who did just that. In fact, this whole book is about him from beginning to end. Its theme, it was written for the express purpose 
that you and I, Joe, could be saved from our sins. And Joe says, wow. Jesus Christ. He didn't come here to start a religion, Joe. He came here to save you and to save me. On the cross, which was a horrendous way to die, there was something worse that happened there that was not able to be seen by eyes of men. God poured out his wrath for you and me on him. He paid the price for our sins. He made it possible that we could be saved. He took every bit of the penalty. And I'm looking at Joe and his eyes are wide as saucers. Wow. Could that really be true? He says, that has to be the greatest act of love I've ever heard about in all my life, probably in all of history and the whole universe. I've never heard of such a thing. And I can't imagine why he would do it for me because he shouldn't have. And I tell him, well, Joe, he did it because he wants a relationship with you and he wants you with him eventually in heaven. And Joe says, heaven? What is heaven like? And I say, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I said, think about God, the mind of God, the wisdom of God, the understanding of God. It's immeasurable. There is nothing he cannot solve, no problem he can't overcome. And if you look at the beauty of creation, there's nothing he can't make and nothing he can't do. Between his mind and his power, it's limitless. And I think, he made heaven. Imagine, Joe, whatever the mind of God can conceive and the power of God can make, that's what heaven is like. Can't describe it, can you? No, Joe, I can't, I can't describe it. It's indescribable, just like God himself. But you know, that's not the best part. The best part of heaven is not the great place that it is, but the great person who is there, God himself. Can you imagine? Here is the one who's loved you beyond measure, and you get to be with him forever because that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted in the beginning when he made everything. Sin ruined everything, but it's not going to stop him. That's his plan. And I tell Joe, but that's not all. And Joe's like, what? Not all? Yes, there's more. God wants you to feel so secure about what he's done for you that when you believed on him, his own spirit took up residence in you. The spirit of God now lives with you, Joe. And Joe thinks about that. Now, Joe's pretty bright. I'm a little slow, but Joe, he's, he's quick. Now, wait a minute. If the Spirit of God is within me, that means wherever I go, day or night, 24-7, 365, God is with me. I couldn't have said it better myself, Joe. Couldn't have said it better myself. I said, but you know, that's not all, Joe. There's more. You're kidding. Isn't that enough? No, guess what? He, he, he wants you to be so close to him in so many ways that he has also adopted you as his son. 
adopted. And on top of the adoption, since you're his son, he's given you an inheritance and every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And Joe's like, ah, he's speechless. Wow, he did that for me? He's flabbergasted. A child of God. An inheritance that's, well, if it's God, he owns everything. Can't measure the inheritance. I said, yeah, Joe. God looks at this situation in such a way that he considers you his own possession. He wants you that much. And when he speaks of you, it's as if you're flesh and blood. That's how it is. That's, what he, that's how he wants it. That's what he's made possible for you. So Joe is totally bowled over by these things. But I tell Joe, well, but that's, that's not all. There's more. <laughs> Come on. Really? More? Yeah, there's more. Okay, so what else did he do? Joe, God has given all his people spiritual gifts, special abilities to do things that he needs them to do for his purposes. You see, Joe, you've been given a high calling. You're no longer just some human being on this earth and definitely no more child of Satan. You have the highest calling now. If you were a janitor at IBM and they wanted you to be the CEO and it was either live for God or be the CEO, you'd have to turn the CEO down because the position's too low. You understand? So Joe says, wow, I wonder what my spiritual gifts are. So that's something you want to explore with God himself. Oh, and by the way, he'd like to meet with you daily in his word and in prayer. He'd like to spend time with you daily. Joe says, well, that's good because when I'm thinking about all this stuff, I don't want to fail him. I'm going to need some help. <laughs> I'm going to need some help. He says, well, you know, we've been looking at the, at the Bible here, and, and you know I've only looked at about a dozen or so verses. You notice that there's a few more in here, right? Yeah, well, he'd be glad to teach that rest, the rest of that to you as well. So, wow, what else does it say? He says, there's so much here to read. I can't wait to see what God's going to teach me. So he says, well, when I meet with him on a daily basis, how long is that meeting? As long as you want. You're kidding, really? Absolutely. God is willing to have as close relationship with you as you want. And during that time, you'll be building your relationship with him and getting to know him and understanding him better. And he'll be speaking to you through his word and telling you things that you need to work on or things you need to do. But that's not all. There's more. You, you should have figured out by now, Joe, you have a direct hotline to God. You don't go to anybody to ask things of him. You can talk to him yourself anytime you want to. Wow. You mean I could literally talk to God all day? Yeah, that's true. You could. And you should. So there's a man named Enoch in the Old Testament. He walked with God for 300 years. Imagine what his life was like. And Joe's like, wow. I don't think I lived 300 years, but I should give it a try. <laughs> so as Joe begins to contemplate this new life that he now has, it hits him suddenly. 
And his family needs to be saved. They don't know God. He realizes his neighbors next door, they don't know God. Co-workers. And he's astute enough to realize, too, you know, there's a lot of strangers out there, a lot of hurting people who don't know God either. And he says, you know, John, I'm, I'm, I haven't spoke to my family for years. They offended me years ago, and, and I wanted nothing to do with them. I'm really angry with them. But I'll tell you what. <laughs> things have changed. If God can forgive me for any and all of my sins, I can surely forgive them for anything they've done to me. I said, you're on the right track there, Joe. That's how you should look at all offenses. So in our discussion, he comes to the conclusion that when he's at work, he's got to work diligently and not waste his employer's time. He needs to understand the stranger next to him in the street or the cafeteria may not know God and may need to know. It occurs to him that all he says and all he does and everywhere he goes, it all counts, it all matters, it all makes a difference because he's a child of God. So I show him Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Look here, Joe. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. <laughs> and Joe looks at me and says, that's a no-brainer. Does Paul even need to tell us this? He says, when I consider the salvation I've been given, and the gifts, and the access, and the inheritance, and all these things, Yeah, I want to live for God as best I can. I don't want anything to distract me. And I said, Joe, that's why this is written here, because this world is full of things that want to tear you away from God, including your own sinful self. We need this reminder, and it's good to keep it in mind as we go through our days. And that's why Paul writes it, and that's why God has it in his word. So I tell Joe, well, Joe, there's one more thing there you need to know about, because there is some more. And so Joe's getting a little used to this and not used to it at the same time. He says, God created an organization called the church. It's made up of people just like you, Joe. And he looks and it suddenly occurs to him, wow, yeah, there are other people in this world that are saved. It would be incredible to spend time with them. With the, with the new position that we have and the things that we have and the will of God to do and to know God himself, I'd love to spend time with them. So I show him Acts 2.42, which is really what the church is based on as far as a, as a pattern. And the first thing it talks about in, in the book of Acts in chapter 2 is that the church would meet regularly. First of all, for the breaking of bread, fellowship, the apostles' teaching, and prayer. And of course, Joe asked, what's breaking of bread? I said, Joe, this is a time we set aside solely for remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. He says, whoa, that must be an incredible time. Everybody? Yeah, everybody. Whoa, that must be... The praise and the singing, it must be out of this world. It's really something else. It's very special. It's the closest we can get to heaven from here. <clears throat> he says, well, that's, that's really awesome. Um, so, you know, how long does it last? <laughs> well, it... We do this about once a week for about 45 minutes. And his jaw drops. Once a week? 45 minutes? Really? That's all? 
I said, well, Joe, we have a brother who, who, who give a devotional, talk about a, talk about a theme, and, and um, you know, we, we have other things we want to do during the day. For instance, one of the things that God has set up is that when the church meets together, there's the apostles' teaching. And so one of the brothers will have prepared a message from the Word of God to get up and, and to teach us. And he goes, wow, I cannot wait to hear that. I said, yeah, it's, it's been incredible to go through most of the Bible, verse by verse, just digging up an, uh, like a, a gold mine and finding the things that God has written there and realizing what they mean and how they affect us and what they tell us about him. I said, and on top of that, we've got special classes too where uh, we, we do things like um, go through, read a book that goes through a summary of the whole Bible to give you a, a, an overall view. We've got special classes that go through certain themes or topics. I said, it's great stuff. Couldn't find a better book to be studied. And then I said, then the fellowship. I said, it's like you were mentioning earlier, Joe, to be with the other believers who know the Lord, who are trying to live for him, to spend time with them. We have a bond with each other that we don't have with anybody else. It's a bond that's stronger than family ties. And when we get together, what God expects us to do is to spend time with one another and use our gifts to, to, to build each other up, to make each other stronger in the faith that we might be a stronger tool for his use, for his glory. And Joe's like, wow. Didn't know so much could come out of fellowship. Well, you know, it goes past fellowship. You know, we might spend time going out together evangelizing or, or helping people that are they're hurt. You know, every time somebody here has a baby... In the assembly, all the wives get together and start making meals for everybody. You should see, people are flabbergasted about that, by that stuff. They can't believe that, that people would take care of each other like that. I say, so yeah, it's, it's really true, Joe, really true. Uh, but there's uh, one other thing that I forgot to tell you about. Really? Well, yeah, we meet on Sundays and we do all these things, but on Wednesday nights we have a prayer meeting too. I say, Whoa, a prayer meeting? But only one night? Well, how many hours do we get to pray? I said, well, actually, Joe, um, about a half hour. <laughs> and he says, a half hour? I said, well, Joe, <clears throat> we have a brother come in, and we have a devotional again, and then we have to take prayer requests, and then we spend time praying. And um, we would like to spend longer praying, but... You know, a lot of churches honestly don't really do this, but we really do like to pray. And yes, you're right. If we could get more than a half hour in praying, that, that would be good. I agree with you. So we'll stop with Joe for the moment and, and just step back and realize, you know, that Joe has the right attitude, doesn't he? About meeting with the Lord, about wanting to know him, wanting to live for him. And you think, okay, yeah, but come on, we can't spend hours at a prayer meeting. Why not? You could, we could. But the point is, is that he, he's bought into the, he's, he's seen this. He said, wow, I have all this in Christ. This is wonderful. This is a new life for me. I want to live it. And some might say, yeah, that, that's how new believers are, huh? And it is. But it should be the way the old believers are too. You know why? I uh, teach the... 10 to 12-year-olds, or 7 to 10-year-olds. 7 to 10-year-olds? And uh, we were talking about things this morning, and 
One of my students said, my daddy says that the first day in heaven, she says all the days in heaven are like the first day. Do you get that? Do you understand that in the Christian life, what God has done for us and who we are, the novelty doesn't wear off. If you feel like novelty is worn off on you, something's wrong because that's not the way it should be. Okay, first picture there, Jake. Anybody know who this is? Who said that? Good, Alexander the Great, that's right. Okay, so you've probably heard the story, and it's hard to say the facts of the story, whether they're completely accurate or not, but you get the idea uh, when you hear it. So Alexander the Great, he's one of the greatest military generals ever lived. He conquered a good part of the world in his time. He had military strategy like nobody else. And he was a great leader. People loved to follow him. So he couldn't sleep one night. He's walking around the campgrounds and he came across a soldier who was asleep. And some of you might know from studying the Bible with the Roman soldiers, sleeping is not something you do on the job. It's a very serious offense. Okay? So serious that in, uh, it is said that um, an officer would pour kerosene on a sleeping soldier and light it as a warning to the rest not to do the same. So Alexander the Great approached the sleeping soldier and he began to stir, recognizing who was standing in front of him. The young man feared for his life. And Alexander the Great says, Do you know what the penalty for sleeping on the job is? Yes, sir, the soldier responded in a quivering voice. Soldier, what's your name? demanded Alexander the Great. Alexander. What is your name? Alexander, sir. A third time, no, speak up. What is your name, son? Alexander, sir. Alexander, either change your name or change your behavior. Unbelievers had a name for early followers of Christ. They called them Christians or Christ ones because they seemed to live and speak exactly like Christ would. They saw these radically passionate people tortured, beaten, eaten alive for daring to identify themselves with the name Christ. Not so much today anymore, is it? The, the Christian name, uh, you know, I don't even really typically like to use And People say, are you a Christian? I, I, eh. well, what do you mean by that? Because... There are so many bad examples out there. People with bad character call themselves Christians, aren't they? I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I want to be careful about being associated with people who have definitely gone the wrong way. So as a, as a person who professes to be a Christian, I need to ask myself, you know, do I really understand the name I'm carrying? Am, am I living up to it? Am I walking worthy? Picture number two, Jake. Everybody knows who she is, right? Anybody know the story about her? Know what I'm going to say? <laughs> when Queen Victoria was a child, she did not know she was in the line for the throne of England. Her instructors trying to prepare her for the future were frustrated because they couldn't motivate her. That's what kids are like, right? Even royal kids. 
She didn't take her studies seriously, and finally her teachers decided to tell her one day that she was to become the Queen of England. And upon hearing this, Victoria, Victoria quietly said, then I will be good. And she was. The realization that she had inherited this high calling gave her a sense of responsibility that profoundly affected her conduct from then on. And I read further that she reigned 63 years and 7 months, which is longer than any other British monarch and the longest of any female monarch in history. And her reign is known as the Victorian era. It was a period of industrial, cultural, political, scientific, and military change within the United Kingdom and was marked by the greatest expansion of the British Empire. Guess she really changed, huh? <laughs> Answered the high call. I think if Queen Victoria can change her conduct for a high calling, how much more should we, right? Okay, so verse 1, answer, walk worthy of the call. Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Verse 2 tells us how we need to do this walk. You have a high calling, it doesn't mean you walk around like you are, you know, somebody better than everybody else. You know, this idea of, of Christians who are holier than thou should not exist, because we are not. Christian lowliness is a disposition to think lowly of ourselves and highly of Christ. Precisely because we've been granted to know God, the Christian person is a person of lowliness. He regards his knowledge as small and lowly because he has seen the omniscience of God. He regards his strength as small and lowly because he's seen the omnipotence of God. He regards his righteousness as small and lowly because he's seen the Holy One of Israel. And since the Christian is oriented on God and not man, he's not puffed up by any little superiority he thinks he has over other human beings. If an ant and a flea stand next to the Empire State Building, the ant doesn't gloat over the flea and say, I'm bigger than you, right? So lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering lead a life worthy of calling to which you've been called. Lowliness is the prerequisites of patience. Haughty people are not patient, are they? The more highly you think of yourself, the more quickly you will think you should be served. People like that typically, or people with this attitude typically say, who do they think they are to keep me waiting like this? But if you have a disposition of loneliness, lowliness and patience, you're not going to feel like it's inappropriate sometimes that you might have to wait, huh? You might realize, yeah, I, I, I don't have any right to be treated like some dignitary. And as you've seen the majesty of God's holiness, you know your own minuteness and your sinfulness. And you don't presume to think you deserve special treatment. If we take that kind of attitude, I think we could get along with just about anybody. And if you've seen the magnificence of God's grace, you know he's going to take care of you. What are you worried about? The verse also talks about forbearing with one another in love. Forbearing is enduring. Enduring these things. And these things can be hard to practice, can't they? Some people can really rub us the wrong way, can't they? Little idiosyncrasies and things like that, little habits, can bother us, can't they? 
Well, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you know people like that are in your life for a reason, don't you? You know, and some of us are just too hard on others. And you know what? Some of us are just defended a little too easily. Some of us are a little too critical, a little judgmental. These things ought not be. We take a lowly position. We're not going to behave like that. Remember, lowliness, meekness, and forbearing is the exact behavior that Jesus exhibited here for us. Isn't that right? And if you know the Lord today, you know that's exactly what he did when he was pursuing you to save you too. Some people look at this kind of talk and say, Luke, be lowly and, and meek. That's weakness. No, it's not. <laughs> Just try it. You'll see how tough it is. This kind of life is not for wimps. If you put on top of that how the Lord talks about us and our enemies, he says if we're to, if, if we're to go the extra mile, give our coat to somebody who wants to take it, feed, and, feed food and drink to our enemies and pray for them, well, if that's how we treat our enemies, how much better should we be treating each other? So, walk worthy of your call with lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Why? What else are we going to do? Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's our objective. Endeavoring. He just doesn't say, you know, be nice to each other. No, you've got to endeavor to keep peace. You've got to work at it. It takes work. It's not easy. This is no little thing. You're going to have to be diligent about it to make it work. Okay? The Spirit of God has regenerated us and made us one with God and one with each other. And so anytime somebody looks at us, that's what they ought to see. So why is Paul harping on this, keeping unity of the Spirit? Well, for two reasons, basically. One, whenever you get sinners together, the chances of sin increasing or happening is, is greater. And whenever the church gets together, it ought to be for holy purposes, and there ought to be none of that stuff going on, should there? I'm one sinner. I'm capable of great sin and wickedness. We often talk to, uh, and I've been talked to as well, when you get married, it's you and another sinner. And when you put you two under a roof, and there's nobody else around, bad things can happen. Sparks can fly, can't they? Maybe not in the beginning, but eventually it's going to happen. Why? Because we have to fight that sin nature in us, don't we? It's going to happen. So we have to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. So now we have a local church, a local body church, a people, group of people meeting here. We might rub each other the wrong way sometimes, huh? I probably, I probably, I've offended some of you sometimes. I've not done things that I should sometimes. And I know some of you have covered for me for things that I didn't do. I'm still here and I still want to be here. And, and, and if I had to do that over again, I wouldn't do it. And I thank you for being gracious and merciful to me, for being lowly and working with me as I try to change and be more like Jesus.
Bill McDonald says, there's enough flesh in every one of us to wreck a church or any other work of God. Therefore, we must submerge our own petty personal whims and attitudes and work together in peace for the glory of God and for common blessing. You know, as soon as there are differences among us, there, there could be divisiveness, there could be problems. And I've always thought, you know, I see this at work a lot. There, there are two different departments. And, you know, we're all getting paid by the same paycheck, but these two departments keep doing this. And I go to talk to one and I go talk to the other. And you know what I find out? They both want the same thing. They're, for some reason, not being able to, to connect, to get on the same page. And I think, you know, it's because there are differences in us, isn't there? Jake, first picture. Some of us come from families like this. Second picture. Some of us come from strong families, and some of us come from weak families. Next. Some of us have grown up with very little. Next. Some of us have been ignored a lot, left alone a lot. Next. So sometimes we do weird things, strange behavior in reaction to our circumstances and things around us and the sin that dwells in us. Next. Some of us have lived in houses that look like this most of the time. And even though that's the case, some of us have had parents that are humorous about it. <laughs> Next. And then you have some parents who are not so humorous. They're very driven, very hard. Next. Sometimes a little over the edge. Next. And some of us have lived in houses like this. I've lived in both. Next. Some of us have grown up with good work ethics to work hard. And we do. And some of us, this is what we've been around and maybe what we've even done. Ah, one more. Everybody's got a different perspective. I'm not into personality tests or anything like this, but it was a, it was a great example. <laughs> To how different people can be. Huh? And so it's no surprise that you get all these people in the same room to try to do something together. Yeah, they might bump into each other just a little bit, right? Well, I don't want to make excuses for anybody. I'm just trying to say, let's have some understanding that we're all a little different from each other. We have something in common, but we have some differences as well. So when you come to church, don't be discouraged by small turnouts to the meetings. Don't get angry when somebody forgets to do something. Don't get bent out of shape because it seems like somebody's not pulling their weight. I don't, I don't sing very well, and I know somebody many years ago was a little bothered by this, but don't look down on someone who can't sing as well as you. <laughs> don't be so critical with someone who has a hard time speaking in front of people. Don't be irritated because this person is not doing things exactly the way you want them to do it. 
Don't look forward to one preacher and not the others. Don't get disgusted with someone because you think they need to grow up. Maybe they do. But getting disgusted about it is not going to help. Don't get judgmental when people are late. Don't get discouraged by the lack of involvement in outreaches or classes. Don't be competitive or jealous of the ministries of others. Don't avoid people you don't know. Be careful of getting into cliques in the church. If there's some place where there shouldn't be cliques, should, there should be no cliques here. Okay? We're all on the same page. We're all in the family of God. We're all headed to destiny of eternity with God forever together. That's how it should be here. Romans 8, 28, 29, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, God works all things together for the good. Those who are called, those who love him. I love it because it's, he says he works all things together. There's nothing that's happening in my life that's not under his control. And if you've been saved and brought to this fellowship, we're here together because that's what God wanted. And you and I might not have a little trouble sometimes getting along, but it's still what God wants. And he's not wrong. So that means we got to do something to change to make it right, right? So I have to ask myself, and you should too, you know, here is the church of God here in Fremont on Falcon, and these are the group of people that God has put me with. Am I doing everything I can for the, for the group here, for this group of Christians, to help them in their faith, to walk with God and to serve him? Am I doing everything I can to keep the unity at Calvary Bible Chapel? I'm part of this body here. Am I doing my part? Am I exercising my spiritual gifts? Do I even know what they are? Talk about BMW being a finely tuned machine. The church of God should be like that, shouldn't it? Now, we're not there yet. We've got a lot of, you know, have you ever thought about this before? When you talk about how long people have known the Lord, we have people of different spiritual ages here, don't we? Okay, so it's, we're going to have to work with that as well. You really should take to praying for our times together. Eliani and I, every, morning when we, every Sunday morning when we drive here, we pray. We pray through all the meetings for, for Sunday, praying that God is really going to bless this time, that he's going to help this brother as a devotional really be on overflow, and the preacher, when he's got a message, it's really going to grip his heart, and the time of fellowship is going to build unity. Breaking the bread, do I worship the Lord daily and then I come here and it's just a natural thing for me to do here too? I'm really encouraged when, I, when other brothers stand up and praise the Lord. I like to hear what they say. I like to hear what they see. It, 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 it encourages me. It puts a smile on the face of the Lord, doesn't it? Isn't that what we're trying to do? You know what? I want to take a little bit too to talk about what we talk about the apostles' teaching. When we preach a sermon here on Sundays... You know, I don't know if you know some of the details about this, but let me, let me fill you in just a little bit. When, I, when we do a devotional for the breaking of bread, it's about a page, a little bit more, if you were to write it all down. And that's not double-spaced either, kids. A sermon is 10 pages plus. When you see a brother come up here to preach, know that he's worked hard. Even if his sermon doesn't come out like you think it should or he thinks it should, and he probably knows it before you do, 
He's had to work hard. He's had to pray hard. And I'll tell you something. Every time somebody's going to preach, things start happening in their life. You know why? Because Satan doesn't want success in this church. And he'll do whatever he can to mess Sunday up if he can. Kids will start misbehaving. Things will go wrong at work. You get in an accident. You'll have a sickness, whatever. That's what the preachers go through. So have a little mercy on the guy who gets up and preaches like me and maybe I'm not doing so well today. You know what I mean? But as I was told before, when you are asked to preach, you are God's man in the pulpit, you are bringing God's message and that's how you ought to pray for that guy. Lord, bring that message. I don't care who's preaching today. I want to hear your word through him today. We meet here on... Oh... We're running low on time. I'm going to have to skip a couple of things here. Um, prayer meeting Wednesday night. You know, prayer is, is hard. It requires diligence. It requires effort because it's easier not to pray. But when we pray, it changes things. And when we have a prayer meeting on here Wednesday night, this is a war room. You don't check your guns at the door like they did in the old cowboy days. Check your sins at the door, but don't check your guns. All right? The fellowship we have, pray that it would be unifying. Pray that we spend time together. Lord, make it special. That's what I pray. Make it memorable. If there is any organization or any time on earth where things ought to be really good and especially encouraging, it ought to be when we get together. Do you know the elders spend hours and sometimes all night meeting and praying for us? Do you know how much... Do you know how much these guys care about us? You may not always agree with them, and I haven't. But you know what I found? I have found when all is said and done that I was wrong, even though it looked wrong to me. Usually I've had a bad attitude. And when you have a bad attitude, you don't think clearly you will make wrong decisions. These men are giving their lives for you to help you walk with God. They care about you more more than you know. second reason Paul is saying these things is because we're the church of God we are his witnesses we are his ambassadors we are his workmanship we are the most important organization on the planet I'm not flaunting that that is a fact because the church is God's tool to reach this world it's an incredible responsibility and an incredibly high calling And if there's any group that should be unified, it should be us. You look at unity, it's a beautiful thing. Look at it in the secular world, it's an incredible thing. When you get an army together that has been training hard, they can go out and win battles because if they don't train hard, they're going to go out and get killed. Armies have made a difference. You don't, I'm, not, I'm not promoting war, you understand. War is terrible, war is a horrible thing. Incredibly bad things happen in war. But war is a part of this world. And if good armies don't get up and stop bad ones, we're all in trouble. A company that's unified is going to make money. And that's all a company is there for. If a company doesn't make money, its doors close. I tell this to my employees over and over again. We're here to make money. 
we do a good thing at my company because we make a life-saving machine. But the reality is, is that if it was too expensive to do, we couldn't do it. But when you get everybody together with the right knowledge and the right abilities, we've taken the costs of making our product down exponentially, and we're making money and we're saving lives. That's the power of unity in a company. Work gets done. Not like sometimes I see one department hitting the other. You know, that's just like taking a gun and shooting yourself in the foot. Why would you do that? No, there's no great organization on the church, on, the, on this planet than the church of God. And not just anybody can be a member. Not just anybody can be a member. Verses 4 through 6 talk about the foundation of what we have. One body made up of all true believers. Denominations, sects, parties, they all go away. They're all going to be gone when Jesus comes. We are one body. Isn't it great to go to other parts of the world to meet believers? Instant connection, isn't it? Instant connection. There's one spirit. One Holy Spirit indwells every one of us. Not a different. There are no, there's only one spirit. Not two, not fifty. We have one hope. We're all headed to the same place one day. And one day soon, probably, we have one Lord. And isn't he awesome? One faith, the body of doctrine delivered to the saints once for all. Everything we need right here in this book. One baptism, whether you talk about the baptism where we were dunked or the baptism where the Holy Spirit put us in Christ, doesn't matter. It's all the same for us. And I love how Paul ends this. We have one God and one Father, the supreme sovereign of the universe, who is above all, through all, and in you all. He'll never leave us. He is always with us. What is the message? The one God who did the one thing to make us one with him wants us to be one with each other. Therefore, be diligent to be at peace with one another. Can I just take a couple of minutes and say this? This is my church. This is my home church. This is my family. I am closer to you than I am with my own family. I got your back and you got mine. We're not perfect all the time, but we're here to serve the Lord together. We want to be diligent to make sure this thing works. We want to be diligent to, to please the Lord. I need you. You need me too. I come here expecting to grow, expecting to be ministered unto, and I will minister to you. I will make mistakes, but I expect somebody to either set me straight or help me up. I want to serve Jesus Christ, and I cannot do it without you. And I'll finish with this. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. I've been thinking about that verse. You know, that's an incredible thing, he says, and it's very powerful. You know, if we're not unified and, and you're not involved in serving the church here, he's still building it. You're not going to stop him. The question is, is when you see him, how are you going to feel? There are no third string players in the church. We're all first string. We're all on the front line. He is busting down the gates of hell and he is plucking us like brands of hell. He is changing us and he's building a glorious church.
And each one of us, after we were saved and equipped, were part of that battering ram to bust that gate down again and grab some more. Jesus Christ was building his church. Let's make sure we're doing it with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your immeasurable love for us and the great high calling you've given us, Lord. We would be crushed under the weight of it if it wasn't for the help and all the things that you've given us. I pray for Calvary Bible Chapel, Lord, that we will grow strong in our faith, that our relationship with you will grow deeper, that we will become even deeper in your word and tremendous people of prayer, that we might do all we can while we're here serving you. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen.